In this episode, I interview Steve August, mentor and coach for first-time founders and a successful entrepreneur and owner of two businesses himself. He took his first startup from idea to exit and has been helping out other people taking that same journey. Hello and welcome to the Successful, Sensitive and Intuitive Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Lydia Sophia Wilmsen and I am an intuitive success mentor for sensitive entrepreneurs. In this podcast, I speak about the challenges sensitive and intuitive entrepreneurs face. I offer you new perspectives and solutions, as well as experiences of other entrepreneurs. Plus, I speak about my personal experience of being a highly sensitive person who has successfully built and scaled two businesses. All of that with the goal to make you and your business even more successful in your very unique and authentic way. Have fun and enjoy. I'm super glad to have you here. Thank you for joining us today, Steve. Thanks for having me, Lydia. It's great to be here. Yeah, okay. So lovely to have you here. And I would start with um, wanting to know from you, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your journey and how you came into the topic of founding businesses? Like how did you start coming up with the idea of founding your own business, basically? Well, it was entirely accidental. The, uh, so I did not uh, study business in school. I studied, of all things, uh, American history. And uh, when I graduated from university, I was doing lots of different creative things, everything from working in clay animation, video documentary, multimedia CD-ROM. I was playing in bands. Uh, and essentially what I, I had, what I would describe as career attention deficit disorder, <laughs> career ADD. Oh my goodness. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no, it was just, you know, careening from one thing to the next, just whatever I was interested in. There was no like great arc that I had established. Uh, but I did a lot of uh, really cool things and, uh, had a lot of freedom. And the way I got started in business I actually blame my wife because when uh, we had our first child in 2002, I was working of all things at museum exhibit design in Oakland, California. And that is a wonderful job and it doesn't pay very well. So my wife was somebody who studied people for market research. She would go into their homes and see how they made their coffee, how they use their digital photos. And then she would report back and, I saw that she was uh, doing a lot of work to, to create a paper journal for people to keep before she got there. And since I, my job did not pay well and her job did pay well, we turned her job into the family business because she was doing it as an independent consultant. So I just kept helping her out on marketing and I kept helping her out on helping make things easier. And one of the things was these diaries and the diary at the time it was paper and it was right around the time that blogs were coming out. I said, Hey, we have these blogs, web diary, mm -hmm. paper diary. Maybe we can make this a lot easier because it seems to be a lot of effort. And so I started playing with that. Uh, and it turns out that it wasn't just a replacement. It was just really phenomenal what people would share over their blogs. And we set up this, this system. And then we started speaking about it at conferences and people started to come up to us and say, Hey, that's really amazing. Can we use that? And I said, well, you could, but you wouldn't want to because you had to be sort of technical. You had to <laughs> know HTML and, and this, this weird 
admin language. And I said, but I bet you we could build something. And that's, that's the essence of a, an entrepreneur is like, I bet you we could do that. Not knowing at all, you know, what it's going to take. Uh, but I had a technical enough background that we built the first system. We, we, we put some of our own money in, we got a bank loan, then we got some friends and family and we built the first, first system that was called Revelation. And that became the company that I founded. And we spun that out from my, my wife's consulting business and we, we started to grow and uh, we moved from San Francisco to Portland in 2007, Portland, Oregon. And we got, you know, about a million dollars, million and a half dollars in funding that next year in 2008. And through fits and starts, we grew. And uh, in 2014, we got an exit. Uh, we got acquired by another company in our space. And I worked for that company for a year. I had an earnout, And then they had bought, you know, two other companies and they sold them both to a private equity company. <laughs> so I stuck around for that as I had options and uh, cashed those in. And then I was suddenly the CMO of a, uh, a company that was owned by private equity. And I was reporting to directly to a private equity board, mm-hmm. uh, which I like to joke, isn't as fun as it sounds. Uh, it doesn't sound very fun to begin with. And so that was, that was sort of my arc. Uh, my first arc in the entrepreneurial world. I'd always had ideas and all these things that I wanted to do, but I'd never really codified them into a business. And that was the first time where it really took off. And I learned a ton. It was, there are certain things I was really good at. I learned in vision and creative and product and certain things I had, a, a, um, I was much more challenged with execution, operations, and just learning. There's such a learning curve of running a business. There's There's sort of the myth that it looks like from the outside of, when you read Entrepreneur Inc. or Fast Company or TechCrunch, they they create a sort of narrative around what it's supposed to be like and a value system around. But until you get in there, you don't really know exactly yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, I love that. I love that super much or very much because, um, yeah, I think many people think before you start out, you have to have this exact plan and this is how it's going to go. And you describe that it like usually goes in a totally different way. And I'm also looking forward to hearing more from the people you work with and their story. I guess they are similar, that they stumble into something and they end up there in like a totally different scenario. And also what you said about basically taking risks, you know, you took up a loan in the beginning, you had no idea what is going to happen with that. So I think those are super interesting things I already heard from what you said. Yeah, it's, it's, You know, to me, it feels like entrepreneurs, like people cast entrepreneurs as big risk takers. Hmm. And I don't see it that way. I see entrepreneurs as people who are driven by a vision, whatever that happens to be, some, something they see that they can make the world better or something that, that enchants them and compels them to do something. Hmm. And, and that makes them do these things that look risky. But at the end of the day, The, the entrepreneur is always trying madly to reduce risk because they're just compelled to take on great levels of uncertainty because they're so driven to make the thing happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a different mindset. So you call it not risky and still we speak about uncertainty. And I guess from a different mindset or a different perspective, it looks like that. However, when you're in the game, obviously you, yeah, you see it totally different and you f it is probably totally different. So I would like to point that out as well, because I do work with people who come basically from an, a mindset, not an entrepreneurial mindset, but an employee mindset. And this is a shift they have to do. They, they think it's a risk. 
and they have to shift into I'm following my mission and I'm actually going steps forward into reducing risk, as you just said. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an entirely different mindset, and I've seen that from people. Uh, you know, when I was hiring people, and I would sometimes hire people from bigger organizations who wanted the excitement of a startup. They didn't really get that with that excitement, quote unquote, they were going to have to operate in a different way. Mm-hmm. That that there wasn't going to be the structure around them. That their the person leading the company may not know what they're doing all of the time or most of the time and are just kind of making it up as they go <laughs> and doing their best. And it is a different, the entrepreneurial mindset is different. And it's, it's really interesting in that when I finally got acquired and was working in a more structured environment, it didn't feel entrepreneurial anymore. And it, and it felt uh, very constricting. Mm, yeah, I get that. So I've been ruined as an employee. <laughs> I've been ruined as an employee. I think we all we all are. Once we have like yeah stepped out into this freedom oriented world, like for me, there is no way going back. And I guess I don't know. Like once you're there and actually making your visions come true, I, there is no way back. Not really. Yeah. Once you signed on to it, I mean, it's really uh, it's really hard to shift it back and say, okay, I'm going to work within this 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 organization even if it's a great organization it's really challenging um, to come at it from like just i see something i see a way we we could do this i'm going to make a decision and go make the decision versus in an organization you have to be like okay let's gather all the parties Mm -hmm. together and i have to get approvals and and all this uh it just half a year later it's a very different mindset (laughs) half a year later you have the decision Yeah. Yeah. Because we already started out on this mindset topic. I would love, um, because we spoke about the five pillars or the five rules you use um, for like your coaching concept. And one of that is um, the bigger game mindset. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that, especially because you work with founders who like get venture capital and really go into like massive growth usually, or like perhaps massive growth um, of their business. Can you say a little bit about that, about the bigger game mindset? Yeah, well, let me let me just step back and frame that up mm-hmm. a little bit. And that is, so after I uh, left my company in 2017, um, I started coaching. And one of the things that's always been hugely intriguing to me is why do some companies, why do some entrepreneurs at, take off mm-hmm. like rocket ships? Why do they, what is it that unleashes them? And I, I just kept studying it. And so... Uh, I came up with, uh, after studying it both from the inside and from coaching and uh, a lot of really fascinating and amazing entrepreneurs, the, uh, I came up with five rules for what I call rocket ship, five rules for rocket ships. And, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're ruthlessly, they're always trying to create ruthless simplicity, like complexity kills. Uh, they are always looking at uh, their customer creation, like, How can you create a flywheel where one customer gets you the next? Uh, and then uh, they're always executing. They're really clockwork execution. And then uh, real-life leadership, like they, they learn how to lead in, in the real world. And then the, the last thing, which you were saying, is this bigger game mindset. And so what I mean about bigger game mindset is when you play, when you think about entrepreneurship, I think about it as It's one of the greatest personal growth and development platforms ever devised by man. 
And the reason is because, because of all that uncertainty that you have to navigate in entrepreneurship, every trigger, every psychological scar, every psyche uh, quirk will be activated as you go through this because you are going to be put into really uncomfortable positions. You're going to be out over your skis, whatever, you know, you're just going to be dealing with stuff from day to day that, that puts you in a place where you're going to, all these, these circuits are going to fire. And it's an amazing service because once they get surfaced, you can actually deal with them. So when I think of it, if you think about entrepreneurship as the bigger game of growth and development as just a platform for that, then whatever happens at the entrepreneurial level, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, and they will all happen. <laughs> There's nobody gets, gets through it without all that happening. If you look at those things, anything that happening to you at the business level as just another way that's pushing you forward on your growth and development, you can't lose. Mm, yeah, so true. And that's, so when you play the bigger game mindset, play entrepreneurship with a bigger game mindset, you're, you're playing at a different level. And you're able to, to, to recognize that all the things that are happening at the entrepreneurial level are just things, whether, you know, even the most challenging things are things that are moving you forward. And it gives you that, just that, that, that little space that keeps you from being consumed by it and lets you actually manage it a lot better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps can you give us some um, examples? What are the biggest fears of founders and, or, and, and explain how this would be put into practice, the different or the, the bigger mindset, yeah, so how this could be applied? I'm happy to. And in fact, I'll use a conversation I had with a client last week. So it's a difficult time uh, with, the, with the crisis. And um, one of my clients has a company and it's done really well. And, but it's, it's got a service side where he's doing market research services and he's got a technology side, which he's, he's been building this technology. Well, the service side has been hit really hard by the crisis. Like they're down a lot. And uh, even with all the support that he was able to get, he had to let some people go. And one of the people he had to let go mm -hmm. was um, somebody who had been with him for a long time, 10 years, almost since the start of the company. So there's a lot of, you know, sense of loyalty and, and things like that. And he, so he felt, mm -hmm. you know, I, we started our session and he just said, you know, he's having a hard time of it, that, um, you know, he, he was very emotional, that he felt like he was failing. He, you know, another person Uh, who wasn't laid off actually left, who was really well liked by people. And he felt like the sense of the company spiraling down and maybe falling apart and, and that it was his fault and he was failing. He had failed to, you know, prevent this and he had, you know, failed to put the company in position so this wouldn't happen. And so he was telling a story to himself of failure. Right. And, and yeah. so yep. when we talked about it, I said, well, what's, what's, What's happening that's positive in the company? Well, I said, well, the, the technology team had been able to come up with uh, a new offering that would turn around results in 24 hours, and it took them four weeks to do that, which is amazing, right? And it's a testament to all the investment they put in up until this point. He said the company, he's wanted the company to transform from more of a services bent to more of the technology bent. And the reality is this is accelerating that. And the person that he had to lay off uh, 
actually they've been trying, struggling to find the right position for him for a long time. And it's pretty clear that he wasn't a fit anymore, which happens sometimes with the early stage employee. And this forced his hand. And so we had to, I just said, well, you can look at these events two different ways. You can say this is a, a, you know, a story of failure, or you can play with a bigger game mindset. You can look at this, this, these series of events as a, a story of leadership of making you faced a hard decision and you went right at it and you did what you had to do. You're, you had put all the investment in place so your, your tech team could turn around and create a new offering in three to four weeks. Um, you are transforming the company in the way that you had wanted to. And so when you think about it, you're leading through a really challenging time and there's going to be hard stuff and you're doing it. That's not a story of failure. That's a story of leadership. And that was the difference between playing at a kind of the smaller game mindset or being just at the entrepreneurial level and playing the bigger game mindset of like, okay, let's step back. Let's see what these challenges really mean. Let's put it all into order and perspective. And suddenly he came out of the conversation, not, he, not the way he went in. He went in as a failure. He went out as a leader. Mm. Yeah. That's their game mindset. Mm. I love that. Did he, like in the conversation, just because um, you gave us um, such a specific example, did he need any, anything more um, around feeling, feeling good? Like, did he need any, anything else with, how do you say that? Um, feeling okay with letting that person go, like this loyalty conflict kind of like, was this okay as well? Or did you do something else? Did you work with him on something else? And we look at, and this is something that we, we, we talk about a lot uh, with a lot of my founders, because a lot of my founders are very empathetic and they're very concerned about how they're perceived. And, and I said, well, you know, I, he, I think part of the emotion was that he felt like he disappointed people or that, that, that the people wouldn't think he knew what he was doing or what have you. And I said, look, you did everything the way you, you needed to do it. Um, ultimately, you know, you're not going to be able to please everybody. There's going to be times when you, when you, you really can't. And the, the thing to remember is you can never actually control how people are going to perceive you. It doesn't matter how they perceive you. It only matters how, how you are in reality. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something that we all need to hear <laughs> uh, more than once. But, yeah, we do work on that. I had another founder this week who was in the same, same boat. He is a first-time founder, and he's got some co-founders that, that came in later who are more experienced than him. And he's always worried about, oh, how is he going to look to them? And which is crazy because his company is like the biggest rocket ship I've been coaching recently. They're just going through the, the moon right now. And, uh, but he's also making this transformation that he needs to make from being in the early stage where you're a founder doing everything to becoming a CEO who's building the organization that can do everything because you can't scale on hustle and grind after a certain point, you, you'll just fall over. And so he was getting worried of letting things go and getting spread too thin that, uh, that people would start thinking, Oh, he's not doing a good job. And it was like helping him see that he needed to let go of that. And that his company was asking him to make this transformation and, and it was time for him to start making that transformation. Mm -hmm. and, oh, I love that. Oh. Sorry. 
Yeah. And so that was, that really, he, he, he entered the, the conversation at, you know, worried about feeling like he might be failing and coming out the other side saying, oh, no, he's in, he's in process of this transformation. Mm. He's right where he should be. Yeah. Um, I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> I'm sure it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, of course. Everything I forget to say, it's always the most amazing stuff. Yeah, what I loved um, in the beginning, what you said that, Like all of them, all the founders you work with are very empathetic persons or people. And um, I remember something, a colleague of mine, she was actually in a mastermind with me um, years ago. And she had a million dollar, like multi-million dollar company. And that meant she was herself a millionaire, like a person who had a lot of money. And she was dealing with this... Um, with this issue that, and I just, I just remembered that now, um, how people see her, you know, that there are so many people having such an issue with, with rich people or wealthy people, or, you know, people like entrepreneurs who like scaled and like are now super rich or whatever. Um, it was so interesting that she actually was so hurt about like how we talk about people who, who make money. And this just came to my mind when you said like, they are very empathetic people and it shows Like wherever you are in business, you know, like whatever you make and if you become a, like have a multi-million dollar company or a multi-billion or whatever, there are still human people behind that and they have a big heart. So, oh, I love that, that you said that. And they deal with the same fears, you know, wherever you are, like when you start out and you just, I think they are just being shown to us on a bigger level. Like what you said in the beginning, why it's so important to do this work, this mindset work, because yeah it shows up, you know, it shows up in many different ways. It's like personal growth deluxe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's definitely, this and parenthood are like your, your biggest <laughs> uh, stressors uh, in life. So, but yeah, the, uh, it's amazing to see, you know, even at every level that I've coached that people are always, there's always another level up mm. that they're looking at. Yeah. It doesn't matter uh, how successful you are. And one of the best piece of advice I ever got was from one of my mentors early on. And she said, never judge your internal success by somebody else's external success mm -hmm. because everybody's spinning. Everybody's putting on their best fate. Everybody's got an Instagram filter on, it, on themselves <laughs> when they're, when they're pushing out to the world. Yeah. And so you have to just stay focused on the most important things that is, Are you treating your, are you serving your customers? Are you giving them value? Are you building value? Are you leading well? Are you uh, creating the things that you want to create? Are you true to your values? Everything else beyond that is kind of out of your control. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, what we already touched a little bit on was this other pillar of your um, framework, which is the real life leadership. Can you give us some more examples or explain a little bit more? what you mean with that and yeah, what it means in your coaching? Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the premise behind real life leadership is that a lot of founders and entrepreneurs and even managers inside companies, honestly, these days get put in a position of leading other people with absolutely no training at all mm -hmm. on what that actually means, like how to manage and how to lead. So I look at leadership, you know, as, two levels. There's the leading, which is like the vision and bringing energy and bringing people along saying, here's, here's the world. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we want to create. Are you with me? 
let's do this, right? That's like leadership. And then management is actually the nitty gritty of like day to day. Okay, how do we translate that bigger goal into what you're supposed to be doing? And how do we get aligned Mm -hmm. on making sure that when we both say, okay, this is what we're going to do, that when we get to the point where that needs to be done, that it actually is done in the way we both expected it. And that was, this was one of the hardest lessons for me to learn as, as I was leading my own company. I, I was really good at the leadership side, but I was not stellar, honestly, at the management side. And part of it was this, uh, there's a lot going on underneath there. Like when you're leading a company, especially as it grows, you have, people start treating you differently. Okay. So if you're leading a company of 20 people and you're the CEO, you are you are not going to get everybody's honest opinion because they see you as the power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, it's one of those things that you have to, like you said about that person stepping into to feeling like they could be wealthy or uh, this, there's another level of that that says, you know, you need to step into, yes, I'm the leader and there's a certain amount of power that goes with that. Even if you're not somebody who like digs power. Um, so I look at it as two levels. On the leadership side, it's about creating that space. Do you create the environment where people feel comfortable and can do their best work? And on the management side, how do you, and this is the biggest lesson I learned, is that there's a big culture of the idea of accountability. Mm-hmm. We got to hold people accountable. Or what are you accountable to? And, you know, in the press, it's like, you know, people who are cracking the whip and holding people accountable. Like that's the, that's the, uh, the premise of accountability. In, in the narrative that you, you get to pushed. But the reality is, and there's this amazing book I read uh, called How Did That Happen? And they break down this idea of accountability into like its component parts. And the biggest part is this idea of expectation. There is no accountability without expectation. And that's, what, that's where a lot of stuff breaks down both in work and in life is this idea of, of really aligning expectations. So this, I, we will say, we might be sitting around a table and saying, okay, this is our goal. Let's do this. And everybody nods and goes, okay, we'll do that. But we didn't really like interrogate, okay, what does that actually mean to do that? What is that going to impact? Um, what resources do we, do we need? Uh, is that really going to work? Uh, what will it take for it to work? And then say, okay, is this, and do we have the time and resources to do that? And then have that that conversation. That's a hard conversation to have, but it's it's the important thing. It's like you almost have to step back, and before you agree on the solution, mm-hmm. you have to take the moment to st- to agree on the problem. <laughs> that's a good one, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and that's what that step gets skipped over. Like there's an assumption. Oh, I see the problem. It's this, and the other people goes, oh, okay, I guess that's the problem. When they know that's not the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the problem is something else. And that, that step is what leads down the road to this, that things not getting done and milestones not being hit. And I didn't, it sounds simple, mm-hmm. but it's, you don't, like so many people don't really understand that progression mm-hmm. because they never, never taught that. And it's like the single biggest piece of real life leadership. The biggest component of that is actually understanding that, that, that a lot of the success of people hitting milestones and accountability is the upfront work mm-hmm. of agreeing on the problem, setting expectations, interrogating those expectations, syncing up on them, and then 
setting that stage and then figuring out if something did go wrong, you know, was it a culture thing? Was it a training thing? Was it a resource thing? Um, and having kind of a framework to do that. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, that's the heart of real life leadership. It's not, not this kind of like, um, part of it is the charging off into the, into the mission. But the other part is like, how do you actually make things happen day to day? Yeah. I love that. So I guess when they work with you, it's a process. So it's not, ah, I just have to understand that. So probably there is an aha moment for that. But then I guess it takes practice to step into this like next level leadership and learn it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. No, I have a founder who's who's, just amazing at how far he's come in two years uh, because he's leading uh, a startup in a clinical trial space. He's been through so many challenges, but he's come out the other side and they've got, you know, million dollar contracts coming through. They just closed $3 million round and uh, they have a supplier who's, who was starting to break down because they're starting to get a certain amount of volume and the crisis is, is, is impacting their ability to execute. Mm-hmm. His the team COVID crisis. Yeah. Just mentioning the COVID it. crisis. Ten, yeah. Ten years. We don't know what we are talking about. Oh, we will. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yes. So the COVID crisis is, has said so that they're having problems with this, this supplier. And the problem with this is that the, their customers don't see the problem at the supplier level. They only see it at the founder's company level. Mm-hmm. So his staff is, is, you know, ready to, to read the riot act to, and really come down hard on the supplier. But he actually stepped back and said, look, let's go back and recheck our expectations Let's go back and, and make sure that we're both agreeing on what the problem is. Because from, from our point of view, the problem is we're not getting what we need. We need to know what their problem is from their point of view. Mm. And then we can, we can get it out. And that whole, just going through that exercise changed the entire tone for the team mm. about how to approach this problem. And it turned into this really positive, it turned a crisis into a really positive event. Yeah. So I see examples of that all the time and when people grasp it it's a beautiful thing yeah it sounds really like ah yeah like a lot of basic things but when you bring them to the next level you know like in like either like smaller companies or in smaller situations you know all that stuff happens as well you know it's not we're not it's not something specific to what we are talking right now or about right now um but you know, the, the output gets um, scaled as well. So if you keep on doing or miscommunicating or and mis- mismanaging expectation and mismanaging the whole process, it just gets c- scaled up and basically you can bring the whole company into ruin, I guess. So yeah, yeah, that's what happens. You scale dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the worst things. Like you might as well start these habits now. Yeah. You know, when you're, you're in your incubation stages because there's two things you cannot scale and that is dysfunction and scarcity. Yeah. Oh no no! I said you can scale them, but you'll you'll bankrupt yourself and you'll ruin the company. <laughs> yeah, you really don't want. You can, but you it don't won't want last to. Long. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to. And I see companies do that. Is is they'll especially on the scarcity side, they'll they'll have customers, early customers, but they're not super profitable and they're mm. not quite the right fit. And they'll say, ah, but we just need more of them. Yeah. And it never works. It never works. You have to really figure out who it is that is your ideal customer and scale on that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And um, you can't start early enough with that. I guess the earlier on you start with um, real life leadership skills, 
yeah, it will benefit you every, like in every area of your life, actually, not only in, in business. Well, think about how many, let's say, you know, I, I have a small solopreneur operation, but I use contractors and I have to use, I use this on the con because how many times have people used upward contractors or, or, and you get to the end and you're like, wait, this isn't what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. Because we didn't, we didn't, you know, really go deep on those expectations early on. Yeah. We kind of wrote out our list. They, they interpreted the list and off we went. Mm. And it's so important to, to take that step. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah. The more you do it, the easier it gets. I love that. Mm, I would love to hear a little bit more about um, either um, from you or also from clients, like about really big challenges or like, have you ever been at the brink of giving up? Hmm. Have you had those scenarios? Oh yeah. You and your clients? Yeah. Well, let's, let's start with me uh, mm -hmm. on that one. So I wrote this, this uh, medium post called uh, when it's, when you're crushing it, but really it's crushing you. There's a, a time in my company's, my startup's history where we had hit this level. I don't know. It was around between one and $2 million and we couldn't get over the, that hump to, to $2 million. And I was working myself crazy. I had, and everything was, was sort of, everything was felt very stuck. Mm. Like I had hired somebody to help me like take off some of my training load and my, the things that I did that uh, took a lot of my time, but so I could focus more on selling or, and, but then he had health issues. He couldn't travel. So I ended up doing both those jobs in some case. So I was on this trip to present a workshop for a client and It, I remember it was on the East Coast, and I live on the West Coast of the U.S., and so I flew out there, super early morning flight, exhausted, uh, went to the hotel, checked in, and then went to the pool and uh, took a swim. But in the middle of the swim, I just broke down. I was just so tired. I was so exhausted. I was so frustrated, and I couldn't figure out how to go forward. Mm -hmm. And um, and I just had to let the emotion just wash over me. And fortunately, there was nobody else in the pool, so <laughs> it wasn't super humiliating. But it was. And the face it was, was wet humbling. already, so who cares? Yeah, all the chlorine was really bad. It just made my eyes just totally tear up. <laughs> and you know, and I just realized I had to start doing something different. Mm -hmm. And so I got out of the pool. You know, I did the workshop. Uh, but then I came back the next day and just like, I have to give myself space. I have to sleep more. I have to say no to more things. I have to really look at how I'm arranging the job. And this is telling me to transform in some way. And I have to figure out what that is. And so at that point, things started to get better. Mm. And, um, and then it was only a year later that we had our exit. Yeah. But it's those low points that are really, unfortunately, really important mm -hmm. <laughs> because sometimes it's what we need to change. Yeah. If we're too comfortable, if it's, if it's okay, if it's just like, if it's doable, if we can tolerate it, it doesn't force us to change. Yeah. And sometimes we have to push ourselves to that, that breaking point or get pushed to that breaking point in order to enact the change. It's kind of, it's not the ideal way to do it, but sometimes it's the only way. 
I love that because it really says, you know, like staying in the comfort zone, you keep the business where it is and you burn yourself out or whatever, like you can also burn out or like kill your relationship or whatever, you know, kill your own health. Um, but it's comfortable and there sometimes there needs to be a wake-up call. It sounds like crisis very often is a wake-up call. And I love that you said, because so many people see like the this feeling of I want to give up as as the end point. But actually, this is like a starting point, you know? It's like a wake-up call for transformation, as you said. It's not like, oh my goodness, I'm a failure. It didn't make it work. No, like then probably also the bigger game mindset is important to say like, okay, we have to change something. This does not mean that everything is a failure and the business doesn't work and whatever. No, it just means we have to do things differently to say, like to see that moment, not as something, oh, I have to give up, but rather as I have to do things differently. So I love that. Yeah. It's a, uh, there's so many points where that's been what I call the hidden blessing of crisis. Mm -hmm. Like it makes you see things that you wouldn't have seen and face things that you wouldn't have faced. One of my favorite exercises that I do in those times and I guide my clients through is this idea of, uh, it's a, a piece of paper with two columns. One column says what's true. And the other column says what's emotion, assumption, projection, mm -hmm. fear. Mm -hmm. And I just take sometimes the, the time to just write down what's true. So in that situation, what's true? The company is stuck. Yeah. What's true? I'm burnt out. What's true? You know, there's a lot of good stuff. Like customers love us. You know, it forces you to write down all the good and the, the stuff that is a challenge. And then on the other side, you write out all the assumptions, projections, fears. It's like, oh, this is all going to fall apart. Oh, people aren't going to, you know, how am I going to face my family? How am I going to face my investors? How am I going to face anybody? if this all falls apart and you realize, okay, this is all, all in that column that is, hasn't happened yet. And yet all the emotional energy is, is going over there. And then when you're able to sort of just look at it, what's true? Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, I find that it, it grounds me. And so I found it to be a really helpful exercise. Mm -hmm. Good exercise. Yeah. Lovely. And do you like, does it happen to, do you have any, not any stories, but some kind of like some stories from, um, from other founders as well? Do they, do you see that often happening that they go through crisis and wanting to give up and want, be angry, be sad, whatever? Um, there's a lot of, I haven't had anybody on the, well, very close. The, the founder who was, who I talked about doing such a great job and involving in leadership Uh, who's got, you know, the millions of dollars in funding. A year ago, he was on the verge. Uh, he, they were just, they're in what I call in the valley of death. And that is a company between the time it figures out its product market fit and the time it actually gets those customers coming on and gets the rewards of that has to survive. And they were in survival. They were down to the point where he was considering driving Uber to keep things going. <laughs> That's how low they were in cash yeah. and taking out his retirement savings. And there was something in him that was just so committed to what they were doing and, and knowing that if they could get through this, uh, this, this period that was so challenging, that they would be okay. Mm. And part of what makes him so confident right now as a leader and as running this company is that he got through that yeah. and they got to the other side. And so there's a huge, 
it is transformation, right? There is, there is a reason the hero's journey is a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's filled with challenge. There is a reason that the Odyssey is, is still read after all these years is because that is a pattern in life. Like it is our challenges more than our successes that forges into yeah. what we are. Yeah. I love that. I have um, two more questions for you. One is because I remember that we connected on LinkedIn in the beginning because somehow, I don't know, I saw your post about your connect and disconnect retreat. And I would just love, and I just couldn't like, I really liked your message and we had a similar approach um, to that. And like, what brought you this idea of Re, uh, de- deconnect no not what's the name to not disconnect. connect disconnect thank you to disconnect yeah. to bring this to the people well i you know it started as something i needed to do for myself mm-hmm. uh, so my family has had a lot of health issues mm-hmm. uh, my wife and my kid both over the last year two years and it's it's just it's been emotionally challenging and uh i found that i needed to just get away And so I live in Portland, Oregon, and outside of Portland, Oregon, is this uh, place called the Columbia River Gorge. It's where the Columbia River, one of the biggest rivers in the world, cuts through the Cascade Mountain Range. Mm -hmm. And it's just a stunningly beautiful place. And I realized I had lived in Portland, Oregon for 12 years, and I hadn't really gone out there very much, just every now and then. So I started every weekend just going out for a drive or a hike, and I would come back, and I would just feel so much better about everything. Like just the space, the nature, the, 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 the stunning just beauty of it at a huge scale. And I just thought at one point, what if I could invite other people into that space? Because as a founder, you're under a lot of stress. You're under a lot of not even just stress, but constant input. There's all the stuff coming in from email. There's all the stuff you're looking, you're reading. There's all the, the general world. Uh, fires constantly to be put out. And over time, you lose your ability to get space, to get perspective, to see yourself, to hear yourself. And that, especially when you're task switching all the time, when these notifications are coming in, bang, bang, Mm -hmm. bang, there's there's no break for your mind anymore. And so I decided last year to invite some people to do this disconnect, reconnect, where we would go out into nature and we would, I, I literally take their phones at the airport when they arrive mm-hmm. and we put them in a box and we say goodbye. And for the next three days, we don't have any contact on, we don't have a digital life. We go right out into nature. We do uh, activities that are very presencing. So whitewater rafting is a, is a big one that we do. Because it's really hard to worry about your marketing problem when you're on a passport rapid. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got, yeah. you've got more immediate concerns in front of you. <laughs> yeah. And I also created something where they have downtime, actual down, like their job is to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's, ne- there's, there's just no places anymore where we're given permission to do nothing. Mm. And you're right. that, is, um, that is something I wanted to give people, especially CEOs. And it was just really profound what happened on the first one. And so I started doing them again. Of course, they're a little bit on hold. The moment we had one scheduled for April, which uh, had to be postponed. But the way I pitch it is, is like I get paid to take CEOs' phones away. 
And a CEO and somebody who hears that is going to have one of two reactions. They're going to say, oh my God, just tell me how much. <laughs> <I'll pay laughs> just it. tell me the price. Here's my card. Right. And, and the other person will be like, oh, man, I can't do that. Yeah. And But this is for that first person. And it's just one of those things where I really believe that every quarter you need to get away from your day-to-day, get in total isolation, journal, get space, stop being interrupted every other minute. Because as one person at the retreat said, I actually was able to put complete sentences together. I could actually put consecutive thoughts together and I hadn't been able to do that in forever. And so I think it's really powerful stuff to, to disconnect and to, to claim your space and be in your own space. I think I connected so much with that because this is very often what I work on with um with my clients, you know. They all come from from hustle world and all of them, all of them have their biggest months when they are like on holidays or they are taking me time. Does not have to be all of them like on holidays, but when they implement that, like disconnecting being for themselves. So I would say it's it's not only vacation, what you're offering there in the retreat. It's really, it might be a big or one of the biggest business boosts for, for those people as well. And we have to understand that in our Western society, you know, it's not only work, work and being driven that brings results, but sometimes it's the, the total opposite. Yeah. yeah. If you look at some of the most famous CEOs out there, they always have something like this. Like yeah. Bill Gates used to take a reading week. He'd go off into a cabin someplace and just read. And just be away mm. for a whole week or two weeks. I don't, you know, but it was multiple times a year because he saw the the value of, um, of that of getting a break. Elon Musk used to get a Burning Man. I don't know if he still does, um, but to get someplace that was really disconnected and really out there and in and in, and especially in nature, where they've done studies on this that that mountains, like if you're around mountains like your sense of creativity and possibility expands. Mm, okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your, your ability to, to look at things and, and deal with perspective of things just changes. Mm-hmm. Cool. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So another, uh, like almost the last question would be, um, because we spoke about introverts and I usually ask my, my, not my clients, my um, interview partners that, um, if they have like kind of introverted side to them or sensitive or whatever, um, like how do you approach business? What, what do you have to do differently than perhaps a very extroverted outside oriented person? And, um, yeah, how you, how do you deal with, with that basically? So yeah, extroversion versus introversion, uh, you know, I think it's the first step is awareness, right? Is like, just be aware that when you're in business, there will be parts of it that energize you, especially if you're a visionary, like working on stuff that's like idea driven and product driven will be very energizing. Things that are like management sometimes or having to deal with people a lot may or may not be um, energizing, but they will drain mm. your, your energy. Because uh, if you're an introvert, you're going to get your restore yourself by getting away. Mm-hmm. If you're an extrovert, you're going to restore yourself by being with people. So if you're introverted, it's, it's really, um, really important to create the spaces. And you know, I have one CEO who's like, his, 
people started to occupy his calendar too much. And it's like, well, it's your calendar. <laughs> uh, you know, you're the CEO, you have control over it. So, and he said, oh, that's right. I can just block off <laughs> my quiet time or my thinking time every day. And I was like, yeah, you can. And sometimes it's just that simple. It's just saying, I'm going to create my calendar and then I'm going to be a slave to that calendar. Right. And in the best possible way. Right. Because I think we, we tend to, if we book a meeting with ourselves on our calendar, we tend to give it less weight than if we book it with somebody else. Like we're more easy, we're, we'll cancel it or reschedule it a lot easier than if we do it with somebody else. But we have to actually have the same level of commitment to meetings with ourselves or appointments with ourselves as to appointments with other people in order for this to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing what I would uh, what I would think of is for perhaps having like lots of business meetings or if you're um, getting those investors, like you have to talk to them and all of that. Is there any way how to make this in a way that it's less uncomfortable or that it actually suits you? I don't know. Zoom meetings instead of in-person meet, uh, in meetings or I have no, no idea. It always depends on, on what it is, how, how you're framing it. I never really had trouble like uh, pitching investors or, or clients. I'd go to London to do a sales trip for five days and I would have like four or five meetings a day. Mm -hmm. So that means I was going around London like a mad person to pitch what we were offering And I found that to be very invigorating mm -hmm. um, because I got to talk about the ideas and the product and I was really excited about it. And to me, that was, that was really good energy. However, what I didn't want to do after that was go out and then have dinner with people. Okay, get it. Yeah. <laughs> and then go out and you know, be social after that. It was just like, oh my gosh, I just need to go back to my room and just woof. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about finding the energy the right energy for you. Like, what is it about? Why are you doing this thing that you're doing in the first place? If it's that compelling, you need to bring that energy to the investor pitch. You need to bring that energy to the sales pitch and live in that energy because that energy will serve you well. Yeah. I love that because I think one of my, f like another interview person she mentioned the same you know it's like being on stage but being filled up with the energy for your project your product um yeah it's like highly invigorating what you just said but then you know those meetings afterwards she in the beginning she didn't know about that she went to all those meetings all all those dinners and she was like drained and then she understood actually no i don't have to go there i just you know i enjoy the being on stage um speaking about my product and then yeah i'm off taking me time again i think it has yeah, to do with it, permission as well to give yourself permission to do exactly that yes permission such a huge factor in everything we do but there is it's like one of those weird things like introverts sometimes are really comfortable on stage because they're in their moment they're in their vision they're in the they're communicating it's a very clear interaction whereas you put the same person in a, in a casual dinner setting, it's exhausting. It's really interesting because you would think for an introvert being on stage would be the exhausting, tougher thing. But actually that's sometimes when they're in their element because 
you're, you're, you're talking about your ideas, you're in your energy. It's a very clear interaction. You convey information, you, you give, give to the audience and they get back to you. And it's a wonderful thing versus going to a casual dinner afterwards would be exhausting because then you have to navigate all the interactions and listen and listening and giving and taking within conversation. And that's harder for an introvert, especially if it's after the presentation, they've expended all his energy to make this thing go and they've had the adrenaline and now they're coming down uh, and they need their energy back. Then that dinner after dinner can be really exhausting. And Mm -hmm. so I just got to the point where I just stopped doing these dinners. Good recommendation for everyone facing that problem. It was lovely talking to you. Do you have any last tips and thoughts, dear Steve? Hmm. Last tips and thoughts. I think the, the biggest thing is, is the ability of these companies that I see and entrepreneurs who create rocket ships is their innate ability to create clarity and simplicity. It's like if something is complicated to you, or it's complicated to explain to somebody else, then you've got to rework it. You've got to figure out, get things to the point where everything is really simple so that a customer, it's really easy for a customer to know if they need you or not, both ways. And it's great if they don't, and it's great if they do, as long as they can make that decision quickly. Because a confused customer will just, won't buy and they'll just consume your time. So you need to make things simple for them. And that goes for everything else, your vision, how you work, your systems in your company, anything that you can make more simple is, is so important Uh, as, especially for folks who are visionaries, we, we get enamored of our elegant solutions, which often can be more complicated than they need to be. Mm -hmm. And that I would just say, embrace ruthless, brutal simplicity in everything you do. I love that beautiful last thought. Thank you very much, Steve. It was lovely talking to you and getting all your knowledge and wisdom here to my audience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lydia.